2 2 to Diaz is hit in the air to deep left field. Back it goes. Elias Diaz puts the National League in front. At 32 years old in his All Star debut, a go ahead home run. All right, hey now. We're back. My bad. <laughs> it's been a minute. Welcome to the Sportscasters. My name is Steve Bennett. Uh, this is episode 12 of season 13. Uh, got a good show for you today. A couple authors on the show. Brian Hoke. Rhymes like Coke, as he told me. He's the author of a book called 62. Um, and it is about Aaron Judge, the New York Yankees, in the pursuit of greatness. We'll talk to him in a minute, and then later on in the show after the book club, Tim Brown, former New York Times uh, author and also, or excuse me, Los Angeles Times uh, writer and author of the Jim Everett book, or Jim Everett, it's been a minute, uh, Jim Abbott book, and the Ricky and Keel book, has a new one called The Tao of the Catcher. We'll talk to him about that. So two books today. Also, I have four interviews. I'm backed up. I've been doing interviews and doing work and not getting in here to finish these because I've been so busy with videos. Um, I started a new YouTube show. It's called 3x5 with Steve Bennett. And I love that name because I start every show saying, hey, now, this is Steve Bennett. Or no, what do I say? I say, hey, now, welcome to 3x5 with Steve Bennett. My name is Steve Bennett. And I like that. That's fun. Um, but uh, I started a YouTube show on the North South connection page on YouTube and I was kind of launching that working on that for a few weeks. Um, we did put up a 24 inch podcast and you know, every year around this time, I just get a little bit of burnout with booking. And this is something I wanted to talk about because Jimmy Traina, who's been on the show before and I like Jimmy, uh, I don't think he likes coming on anymore, which is ironic. And I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. Uh, Jimmy Train has been really vocal lately about his frustrations with booking a podcast. And keep in mind, Jimmy Traina works for Sports Illustrated. This probably could have been a one last thing, but I have something else for one last thing today. And it just came to mind, so I'm going to talk about it for a second. Jimmy Traina does the sports media podcast for Sports Illustrated, the one that Richard Deitch started. He inherited it when Deitch went to the Athletic and moved to Canada. Um. Look, at nothing has been bigger for me in booking my show, certainly with people who've never been on it before, than the article that John Wertheim wrote about me in Sports Illustrated. So I can only imagine what it must be like to book a show when it's for Sports Illustrated. And it just blows my mind as the dude who's been in his spare bedroom since 2011 booking one of the best sports podcasts in terms of guest quality pound for pound in the entire world. I mean, there is no reason people like Frank DeFord and Joe Buck and Artie Lang and John Wertheim and 
uh, people from entertainment like Andy Green, who's going to be on the next show, monsters in sports writing like Joe Piznanski, every single Monday Night Football play-by-play announcer since Mike Tirico. I could go on and on. Sean McDonough. No reason these people should be on the show except for I asked them and I asked them again and I emailed them and I texted them and I begged them on social media and I worked and I worked and I worked and I built something. And look, I didn't build Pardon the Take or whatever. This isn't the biggest podcast in the world. I get that. Right? But I think pound for pound. I didn't know a single person in sports media when I started this show. Not one. Jimmy Train has been working for Sports Illustrated and Fox Sports and in sports media for decades. And if he's struggling, imagine what it must be like to book this show. If he's complaining, if he's annoyed with the lies and the blow-offs and the non-returned emails and all those things, imagine what this must be like. And listen, when I started this show, I've said this before, the biggest challenge was to explain what I wanted from people, right? Famously, Peter King said, look, I'll do the show, but I don't know what a podcast is. So he told me in 2011, explain to me what you want from me. Okay, now the challenge is there's 2 million podcasts, right? So everyone knows what it is, and they've also been on 30. Why should I do 31? And why should my 31st be with some jabroni from Buffalo uh, who does this show out of his spare bedroom? And my answer is always like, well, John Wertheim wrote about me in Sports Illustrated. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know if that's working or not. But look, I'm proud of the, if nothing else, I'm proud of the fact that for 12 years I have booked my ass off. Go ahead, put my names, put my names up against any sports podcast out there. And I don't do athletes anyway. And and the few of the few I've had, you know, big names, right? John Schmoltz has been on here. Malcolm Kelly, although not a great player in the NFL and a superstar at Oklahoma, who was an icon or is a sports uh, legend for his rap, Deuce McAllister, pro bowler. So even when I've tried to get athletes, I've gotten some big ones. But that that's not what I do, generally speaking. Freaking John Smoltz, pitch game seven in the 1991 World Series. Hey, John, you want to come on this podcast? I guess. <laughs> anyway, I needed a break. I'm back. I'm excited to be back. I got three shows now. I like to think that I don't have a big ego and that I don't need a lot of attention. Yet I'm screaming on the internet to practically no one on three different podcasts. <laughs> two two on uh two traditionals and one on YouTube called Three by Five with Steve Bennett. Check that out for me. And like it and subscribe to it and all that shit too. All right, first things first, real quick. I want to talk about baseball. So the All-Star break is here. Uh, the Home Run Derby was was cool. I, I understand the format. I like the format, but sometimes you have things that happen. Like the hometown kid hits 41 home runs in one round. It doesn't win the thing. 
Or, you know, you have stuff that happens like Agley hits a ton of home runs from the left and then switches to the right, hits nine more, puts up a huge score, and then loses anyway in the first round. We don't get to see him again. So I don't know what you do with that. I still like the home run derby, but could be some format issues there, although I do get it. And I do like the bracket, I think, better than whatever they did before. Uh, But I don't know. The other thing about the All-Star game is the National League finally won it. There were eight Braves on the team, and at one point, we'll talk about the Braves in a second, and at one point, the uh, infield was all Braves. First, second, short, and third, all Braves. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, Really cool. Not that they had that huge of an impact on the game, necessarily. It was a 3-2 game. Played the home run at the top. National League for first win in nine years, I think, something like that. Maybe it was 12. 2012, maybe. I don't know, long fucking time, whatever. Um, But the last thing I wanted to say about baseball, it's the All-Star break, and the Braves are 60-29. and 6-0 and 29. And Max Fried and Kyle Wright yet to have pitched. You know, to be fair, Max started opening day. I think he pitched like three innings before they took him out injured. But like they're 60 and 29 and their trade deadline is going to be those two guys without giving up an asset. And I'll say this, like I've talked about them all year and I've talked about how they made me nervous and how I thought they might wear out their bullpen. And Snit has done a great job piecing this together. We're going to have uh, Jeff Passon on soon and we'll talk about this obviously. But I do think they need Max Fried especially, and they need him to be very good. So hopefully those rehab starts are going really well. The interesting thing will be it's such a different year from last year. So last year they literally had to play to game 162 to win the division. And this year they'll probably coast to the division, and how does that affect the playoffs? It'll be interesting to find out. But 60-29, and 29, my goodness, what a team. What a team. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a break. We'll come back uh, with Brian Hoke. And uh, then we'll come back for a book club update. And my desk is full of books. So I have a lot to talk about. And then after that, we're going to interview Tim Brown about the Tower of the Backup Catcher. And then I'll do one last thing. And one last thing tonight, I want to talk. Yesterday was the two-year anniversary of Italy winning the Euros. And I'm sure there's some people rolling their eyes out there. Uh, But I want to talk about that one more time. And I want to try if I can, to put in context, on, in context why that tournament is so important and why it essentially changed my entire life. So, and I don't even think that's hyperbole. But for now, we'll take a break, and we'll be right back with Brian Hoke. Thank you for checking out the Sportscasters podcast. Don't forget to check out my other show, the 24-inch podcast. Hollywood Dave Rollins, Paula Bennett, and myself look back at the career of Hulk Hogan, the immortal one. We do it every other week. We cover matches from the 80s, the 90s, his entire career. We read the news from the era. It's a great nostalgic look back at the greatest wrestling career in the history of the business. Be sure to check it out right on this feed, brother.
Hey, Brian, how you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. Where are you, in the city? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, still in New York. Flying to St. Louis tomorrow morning. Are you in Manhattan or um, a different part of the city? Or Yeah, I'm I, right now I'm in Manhattan. Right yep. in Manhattan. Okay. All right. Well, I'm... Uh... You guys say downstate, or no, upstate, you say, but I'm actually in western New York. Um, okay. Yeah, we get mad here because everyone calls us upstate, but we're not upstate. We're in the west. Yeah, you know what? I grew up in Rockland County, New York, so everything uh, north or west of Suffern, that's all upstate. So you right. can, <laughs> we, yep. I think we're going to disagree on that one. Yep, everyone in New York thinks anything that is, like you said, that uh, the whole rest of the state is upstate. Um, <laughs> yeah, Albany, uh, Syracuse, all that. That's yeah. all upstate. It's yep. just upstate. So, but we're definitely Western. Um, anyway, the book is called 62. I, I really enjoyed it. You know, it's a, it was an interesting thing last year because I have a, well, she just turned seven, a seven year old daughter. So last summer, she's six. And I know you remember, as we all do, um, that as he got closer and closer to hitting the milestones, you know, every at bat was a television event. And, um, I, I will forever thank Aaron Judge for now my daughter's played T-ball for three years. So it's not like she didn't know what baseball was, although, mm-hmm. you know, but as a television event, as something we watch on TV, I mean, this was the, the, the conduit for my six year old daughter. She knew who Aaron Judge was. She knew who the Yankees were. She knew there's a home run record. She got to learn about, you know, Babe Ruth and. Mark McGuire and you know Roger Maris. And Roger Maris. You know, Isn't these, that awesome? Yeah, yeah, because it was much it was much the same in our house too, because you know, my daughter Penny and and to a lesser extent my daughter Maddie have grown up around this sport and Penny is six now and Maddie is four and but they can both identify Aaron Judge and they both knew that Judge was going for a record last year and that sixty two was the record. And uh, this year when we signed them up for T ball, they could sign they could choose their uniform numbers and you know, I asked Penny what number she wanted and of course she wanted 99 i I think that's cool it really did kind of leave an impact and a mark um you know obviously we lived it day in and day out but uh this next generation is kind of seeing it for the first time and i I think that's what's great about it is you've got this kind of larger than life superhero in judge and if you get the chance to meet him in person or, or see him in a game he towers over everybody else and it's easy to point to that guy on the field and say Oh, I'm going to watch him. That's the guy I want to watch because he looks like he's bigger than everybody. Um, the camera's always on him. He seems to be always smiling. He's great with kids. Um, so I, I think the judge's chase, in a lot of ways, was good for baseball, um, not just for the Yankees. It was good for baseball, too. It was kind of this feel-good story that we could all rally around. And uh, you, you lived it. Uh, their first hand, as did I. I mean, my kids love Aaron Judge, and uh, it is kind of the uh, the gateway to getting them into being lifelong baseball fans. And I did get to explain to my daughters uh, as a result of this. Oh, Judge is chasing the record. Who is he chasing? Oh, who was Roger Maris? Who was Babe Ruth? And so it kind of did open the door for a lot of those cool conversations. I swear to God, the one night it must be three. You know, it took a couple of days. Must be three or four days in, and I'm like, oh, Paula Judge is about to be up. She's like, Dad, you know they're just going to walk him again. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking the same thing in the press box. I guarantee it. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, this is crazy. Uh, yeah. When did you decide to do the book? Was it during the chase? Did you say, you know what, This is I got to start thinking about how I can make a book out of this. This is too good. Was it? The off season, did someone come to you during what was kind of the process of turning 
um, turning Judge's season into 62? That's a good question. Um, around the All-Star break in July, if you remember to roll the clock back, he was around 30. 30, 31 home runs. And I said, all right, I can do math. And I know that uh, half of 62 is 31. And I said, can he get there? Could this be really? Uh, and that, that was part of the when people started to really talk about it. And, of course, the team was playing great. They had like a 15-game lead in the American League East. And he thought that this was going it was either going to be a special season for Judge or a special season for the team or both. And so I, I contacted my agent who uh, – Stacy Glick, who I worked on on my previous books, and I said, what about what's going on with the Yankees here? What do you think? Is, is there a book? And her response was kind of like, mm, let's see. Let's wait. And so, uh, you know, fast forward about a month or so, and I was in Anaheim, and Judge hit number 50. And now you're looking at the calendar. You're seeing how many weeks are left in the season. And you're saying, he's going to get this record. And so uh, that was kind of when I revisited. I said, what about now? And, and then she put out some feelers and Sure enough, there was interest in it in a book. And so uh, I didn't know when I started writing it if he was going to get that record or not. And I didn't know if if he didn't get it, if he if he stalled out at 57 or 58, was there going to be a book? I didn't know. But I thought now is the time, you know, obviously one of the benefits of my day to day job is I literally have to be around the Yankees every single day. So it was a perfect opportunity to start making the extra phone call, doing the extra interview, starting to collect and, and organize my stuff just in case he was going to get there. And then, of course, when he gets into the high 50s and you realize, all right, this is going to happen, um, that was when we really kicked it into high gear. So I would say it, it germinated around the All-Star break, uh, the idea that there was a story here to tell. And I didn't want to just tell it about Judge, uh, although that was great, and the pursuit. I, I felt like his chase for 62 – just like we talked about with our daughters here, uh, it, it kind of gave all these little prongs where I could go discuss the, what's going on around the Yankees and who, how the Yankees are run and uh, the, the home run pursuits of years past and what Roger Maris was going through in 1961 and how it contrasts with what Judge went through in this Instagram and Twitter era of 2022. So there were a lot of cool parallels. And of course, like, you know, a lot changed in 61 years, appropriately enough, between when Maris set this record and when Judge did, and of course with Babe Ruth before it. But three great Yankees, all who played the same position in right field, different eras, different ballparks, but they all held this same record. And kind of exploring the connection between them, uh, that was what I really wanted to dig into. That's super interesting. I'm wondering about Judge. When did he find out you were doing this, and, and what was his thoughts? When Was he like, oh, man, another thing here? Because, I mean, he, <laughs> his media load got pretty heavy, admittedly, during this. I don't know. It absolutely yeah. did. And, it, yeah, he was pretty fried on – there were so many people throughout the chase pulling him in every single direction. Uh, yeah, I mean, look at what the, the Maris family and Roger Maris Jr. did. Yeah, there was uh, they so many games. Yeah. They tagged along and came to so many games, but yeah. I thought the one smart thing that Roger Maris Jr. did was he waited until Judge hit 61 before he went down to the clubhouse and actually met Judge. They didn't meet until Judge actually joined Roger Maris Sr. with 61 home runs. And I thought that was pretty smart and pretty cool because there were so many people pulling at Judge in every single direction. And so uh, he was aware of what I was doing. And, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about it uh, as the postseason began. I, I kind of waited until he had actually done 62 because, 
you know, even though I don't believe in jinxes, I think that if you're going to go up to a guy in his face and say, hey, I'm going to write a book about you breaking Roger Maris's record, and then he hasn't done it yet, right. uh, that, that, <laughs> yeah. I wasn't going to do that. Um, so, you know, and, and I'm thinking about Domingo Herman pitching the perfect game the other day, and I'm thinking, you know, w- when I'm looking at it on TV, I can't really affect the outcome. But when I go talk to a guy face-to-face, that I feel like is crossing the line. So sure. I waited until he had actually done it before I gave him a heads up on it. And uh, he was great about it. Honestly, I kind of explained to him. And yeah, it, the, our first um, conversation about it, I watched his eyes kind of glaze over in that way of just another media request or what are we doing here? And I said, now, look, I, the, the story is going to be about you, but it's also going to be about how you fit into this puzzle of, of Yankee history and what you've done and the accomplishment. And it's not just kind of a paint-by-numbers biography of you because that's been done already. Uh, what I want to do is connect you to uh, Roger Maris, to Mickey Mantle, to Babe Ruth, and, and where you fit in that lineage. And to that, he kind of gave me that Aaron Judge smile, and he kind of slapped me on the back, and he was like, all right, good luck. Like I, <laughs> I, I, I'm looking forward to it. And like um, I, I think that that kind of opened him up and that was uh he, he kind of understood that what he had done was historic you know I, one thing i think it obviously Aaron judge impressive guy right and you know i was i think a lot almost everyone even yankee haters i mean i live in buffalo where the yankees are the number one team here by far i mean the blue jays found that out during covid when they were trying to play home games here and they had very very supportive crowds until the yankees came and then they had not even one fan you know, um, but then there's the other people mixed in who don't like them. But Judge has sort of become like Jeter was in a way. Yeah, maybe they don't like him, but certainly they respect him. You know what I mean? He's kind of that kind of way, and he's an impressive guy. He's good with the media, and I think he was uniquely poised to handle this. You know, maybe in the same way, and I know McGuire's is tainted now and all that, but he seemed to handle it with a with a with a with a poise too, and maybe having Sosa involved that summer helped as well. But I think about like the DiMaggio hit streak. You know, it's like I feel mm-hmm. like that's never going to be broken because of what we just talked about—the media load, right? By like number twenty, it's on the radar, you know, and like by number thirty, it becomes a hundred guys at your locker every day, and you got thirty plus days left, or you know, mm-hmm. whatever it is. Um, what did you think about Judge's kind of unique ability to handle all that and kind of the way he seemed to take it in stride with poison? I mean, even when it was seemed to drag out a few days for that big home run, you know, you never felt like it was going to break him or anything like that. You know what I mean? Right. That's a good point. And I feel like in a lot of ways he was built for this. And so, um, yeah, there's some parallels you can draw between him and Jeter, their personalities, kind of the way they approach leadership in the house and captain. And as he navigated this, this was a big reason why uh, unprompted, we didn't even ask the question, but Nestor Cortez and Anthony Rizzo, they stood up and said, if judge comes back next year he needs to be our captain and we need to make this formal and so i, I think that uh, it, there's a lot of it in the temperament um you know between the white lines he's he's trying to rip your heart out he's trying to, to win every game but i feel like he navigates it so well where you know we talked about him he always makes time for signing the autograph for the kids in the in the front row and stuff like that and um 
He's accountable. He's at his locker, which is, you know, a major part of dealing with the New York media where there's just so many microphones and notepads in your face every single day. And some guys duck and hide. And he never did that. He understood that his responsibility, whether he hit two home runs or, or, or as the chase was going on, if he went over four, right. he still had to stand up and, and talk about it. And uh, the reason you do that is not because Judge wants to thump his chest and say, look at me, look at me. That's never who he's been. Um, I think he understands that if you don't, if you duck it, if you stay in the training room or in the food room and you don't come out, then your teammates are going to have to answer you for you because uh, one way or the other, these stories are getting written and we need to talk to somebody in that clubhouse. So uh, it, by coming out and doing your stuff, giving, a, giving that five or ten minute interview, uh, that really lightens the load and it allows the rest of your teammates to kind of relax. And so I think that uh, you saw this uh, throughout the whole thing. If you watch uh, the the highlights of the home run chase, as as excited and as happy as he is at times during it, I feel like it was almost a relief at the end that he got there. His teammates were the ones who really enjoyed it and loved it. And, you know, Giancarlo Stanton was telling me about how the night he hit 62 in Texas, they went and rented out a big ballroom at the hotel they were staying at in, uh, down near Dallas. And, um, you know, they, it was really a party. And I asked, you know, how Judge was during that. And it was never this kind of look what I did. It was more like, look what we did together. And I think that right. that was kind of the, uh, the theme of this whole thing is that um, Judge, I mean, from the outside looking in, it seemed like he was doing it all by himself. Like, you know, the team was off to a great start. They fizzled out in the second half, and he was single-handedly carrying them. Uh, this was not 1961 where Maris had uh, Mickey Mantle kind of pushing him throughout the whole thing, and Mantle right. got to 54 before he got injured. Judge was all by himself on an island here for a long period of it, and he kind of had to do it by himself, but it never felt like he was doing it by himself. Brian Hoke is with us. The book is called Aaron Judge, the New York Yankees in the Pursuit of Greatness. One thing I love very specifically about what you did in the book, and you kind of mentioned it before, was I wasn't just reading about 2022. You know, I was reading context. I was reading about the history of the Yankees and how all of these things that Judge was doing in 2022 ties back to the rich history. And even though I'm not necessarily a Yankees fan per se, mm -hmm. although I don't have any issue, I love when the Yankees are good. I think they're, you know, a fun, fun team to be the villain of the league sometimes. And, you know, all my friends usually seem to love them. Like I said, they're a huge team in Buffalo. But the history of the Yankees as a baseball fan, it's kind of like someone who maybe loves baseball more than other teams, any, any specific team. It really comes to life in this book. You know, the lineage of somehow the franchise has managed to like go from Ruth to Gehrig, you know, to um, DiMaggio, to Mantle, to, you know, um, Reggie Jackson, to Don Mattingly, to Derek Jeter, to now Judge. You know, it's like this unbelievable uh, lineage and history. And you really did a good job of pro providing that context. Was that important to you when you when you did this? <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, one of the, the most fun things about this project was that I didn't want to just kind of go, on this day, Judge hit home run number 17. Yeah. On this day, he hit eight. That was kind of boring to me. Um, you know, we'd, we'd seen the highlights. We watched it. We lived in it. It was all, all so fresh in our memory. Uh, what I wanted to do was delve more into Yankee history, into baseball history, and kind of connect the dots of why this home run record is significant. And, and you mentioned earlier, 
uh, Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa and then Barry Bonds, of course. And uh, we've seen this record broken before. Uh, I view it differently now in, in the wake of what we know about their steroid use and all that. But I'm not one of the people who wants to pretend it didn't happen. Uh, we watch it. We watch it every night. We watch Barry yep. Bonds hit 73. And if you ask me what the record is, I say 73. Roger Maris Jr. would disagree with me. But that's right. okay. We, yep. can, we can agree to disagree there. Um I, I, I think that it is still significant, and it's significant of where, by where these guys did it, how they did it, and to kind of, like I said before, the parallels between them. They played the same position for the same franchise, 61 years apart. The record was 61. Uh, Judge wears number 99. The Yankees won 99 regular season games. Like, there's so many cool uh, little tidbits and connections I wanted to make here. And, and uh, one thing I definitely tried to do was um, to reach out to anyone who was still around from that summer of 1961. And so you got Billy Crystal, who I think was 10 or 11 years old at the time. But uh, there's only two guys still hanging around from that 1961 team. And I got them both. I got to talk to Bobby Richardson and to Tony Kubek and, um, not just about what Maris went through, although they gave great color on that. And, you know, I loved hearing uh, from Kubek about how many cigarettes that Roger Maris was smoking at his locker before a game and what it was like in the clubhouse and how many reporters were hounding him. And they would go from Roger's locker to Mickey's locker and then back to Roger's locker because apparently, and I didn't know this, uh, press conferences didn't exist then. Nobody had even thought of it in 1961. Wow. And uh, the NFL brought it along sometime in the late 70s, I found out. But you basically, if you're a newspaper writer in 1961, and they probably had about 15 papers because you had the morning papers, the afternoon papers. We didn't have the Internet, obviously. Um, these guys basically had full access to the clubhouse right until the first pitch was thrown. So it was just a crazy world that they were in. Um, so that was great color to talk to Richardson and Kubek about that, but also to kind of ask them their thoughts on Judge. And now watching this 61 years later as uh, their friend Roger's record was being challenged and ultimately broken again, how invested were they? Were they pulling for Judge or against him? I was curious about all of that. And Believe it or not, they were pulling four judges to do it, and a lot of it was because we've seen this record broken before. Um, but, the, you know, obviously the way we look back at Bonds and Maguire and Sosa uh, is colored now. It's tainted by the fact that they, they use steroids, and Judge seemed to be doing it the right way and uh, had the blessing of the Maris family. And so that was good enough for, for Bobby Richardson and Tony Kubek, too. They were they were happy to see another Yankee claim that record and uh, be in the spotlight the entire summer for doing it. Yeah, there's a, uh, there's a thing in the book that you do where every – chapter two there's a 61 flashback and mm -hmm. anytime i would flip the, flip the page and see one on the next i would just stop where i was you know and go right to that that like some of that awesome. stuff was my favorite uh part of the book that like i said the history and the context of it you mentioned the marises and kind of uh what they thought about it have you have you have you had a chance to give them a book have they read it um do you know how they feel about your project not necessarily the home run chase a lot because their dad is a huge right. part of the book itself 
No, yeah, and Roger Maris Jr. wrote the foreword yep. for this book, so I feel like that's a really cool stamp of approval there. And I love that, um, you know, once again, and probably for the last time, you got this beautiful cover, a photo of Aaron Judge, and then right under it, you've got forward by Roger Maris Jr. And then these guys are, this, these families, these players are going to be connected for all time. And I feel like, you know, 20 years from now, you're going to look at that book cover and, uh, oh, remember that summer where Judge was chasing Maris's record? And it's, it's right there. And so uh, I'm, I'm very proud of the way it came out. Um, I'm going to actually see uh, Roger Jr. in St. Louis. He's going to be there for that. So I'll, I'll get to give him his books in person. I've sent him PDF copies, but I haven't given him a, a print copy yet. Um, so cool. I, I assume he's read it by now. Um, but and, uh, you know, I've, I've certainly heard nothing but positive things from the family about that. But it's going to be cool. Hopefully we can get a, uh, a signed copy at some point where we can get um, Maris and Judge and Aaron Boone. all to uh, Aaron Boone wrote the preference for the book to, to get them all connected. I think that would be really cool if we could get uh, a one of one there that I can put on my bookshelf. The very last line in the forward that Roger Maris Jr. wrote was I, I highlighted it for whatever reason it stuck out was. You know, 62 and 22, what an exciting season it was. And I know that's maybe like a little generic. I mean, it wasn't poetic. He didn't do anything poetic or anything interesting with the language or anything, but it was so profound. It just set up the whole book and the whole thought of of what was going to be next, you know, because it was, Mm -hmm. you know, an unbelievable summer for so many ways. So I'm glad he's I'm glad he's into it. You know, Jeff Perlman and I were talking once about his sweetness book, which he worked so hard on. I think it's his best book. Oh, on Walter Payton. Yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. A lot of people hated it, and they hated it before they read it, you know, because he was honest about the good and the bad of Peyton. And, you know, I think it's important. uh, I assume it's important. You spend so much time, work so hard in these books. Then you come out, you present them to the world. There's got to be certain people that you hope most love it. And I'm sure with something like this, it's the Maris family and it's Judge and and, and people like that. You, You want them to feel good about it, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's a there's some truth to that. Yeah, for sure. And I, I certainly am I'm not spending hours upon hours uh, writing a book so people hate it. <laughs> I mean, You're that's, right. Yeah. Uh, that's never the goal. But yeah, um, yeah I, I think that this I, I hope. Yes, it, it, sure. I, I hope that the Maris family loves it. I hope that the Judge family enjoys it and uh, that it kind of captures this moment in time for them. But really, this is for the fans. And I know that sounds kind of cheesy to, to say, but it's true. I mean, um, we all kind of live this chase day by day. And what I wanted to do was kind of peel back the curtain a little bit and say, all right, here's what you saw on TV. Here's what you missed. Here's what you weren't able to see behind closed doors in the clubhouse because I was there every single day. And, you know, obviously we wrote a lot about it as the day was going on. But uh, the number of people who read 162 of my game stories last year is probably pretty small. I, I, even my wife. <laughs> There were so many things that, um, you know, maybe in April or May didn't seem significant. But now looking back, it was kind of like, oh, wow, you know, you could see this or coming or that coming. Um, it, there were kind of getting to roll the clock back and tell this in a more long form story. I, I think that it's something that Yankee fans and baseball fans, I hope, will um, really enjoy reading and, and be proud to have on their bookshelf for years to come. All right, Brian, last thing. I'll get you out of here on this. So we talked about the Yankees' history and the lineage and why the context of the history was so important to you. We're recording the day after. Now, the book, the book, the publishing company wants me to hold this for a week or so, and I will because I always want what's best for the book. 
but we're recording the day after the fourth perfect game in Yankees history. And I only bring it up because we're talking about the history of the Yankees here and some of the big moments, you know, and of course you have the World Series perfect game. Then you have the two um, during the 90s run, Cone and, and uh, Wells. And, mm-hmm. and now we have one last night, I think, with the 24th maybe in Major League Baseball history. How about Correct. a minute or two on the, the perfect game, the significance of it, and where it stacks up with the others in Yankee history and, and kind of that context we've been talking about through this whole interview, kind of a new wrinkle and a new page in this the long, lustrous story of the Yankees and, and their history. Yeah, pretty, I mean, very impressive. And, you know, uh, perfect games don't come along that often. We haven't seen one in the uh, the big league since Felix Hernandez did it in 2012. And like I mentioned earlier, I, you know, I wish I could have been there in person to see it. But even watching from afar, uh, it, it seemed significant and special. And, you know, I was on the edge of my seat along with everybody else just to see if he was going to finish this thing off. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> one thing sticks out. To me, and then it was from the post game show, and they they obviously uh, the S network called in David Cohn, who uh, was a perfect guy to have on for eight or ten minutes there, and and he made the point that Domingo Herman now and Kyle Higashioka, the catcher, they're now linked forever in baseball history. They don't realize it now. Right now, they're just enjoying the accomplishment, but they don't understand that they're going to be signing autographs together for the rest of their lives. Uh, they are now right. indelibly linked by this perfect game, just as Cone was with Joe Girardi, just as David Wells was with Jorge Posada, just as uh, Don Larson and Yogi Berra Yogi were. Bear, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, when I, I'll give a quick aside here. When I was growing up in Rockland, I, my first job was at a sports memorabilia store at the Palisade Center. Maybe people from Rockland remember this place. Uh, DC Sports, and and in one of my first weeks there, we had a, a autograph signing with uh, Larson and, and Yogi Berra together, and you know it was awesome. I mean, the line went around right around the mac- in the macaroni grill and all through the mall, and people were lined up for for hours and hours to meet these guys and. I think that was super cool. I mean, that was 50 years, I think, after the event had actually happened. And they were still together signing autographs, signing balls. People uh, were so excited to see them in the same place at the same time. And uh, maybe that's what the, the future holds for, for Domingo Herman and Kyle Higashioka. I think that's really cool to even think about the fact that uh, that could be and, and that people are still going to talk about that event for years to come. And um, one thing about the previous three in Yankee history, this is the first one that happened on the road. And I think there was something special about the fact that Larson and Barra happened at the old Yankee Stadium in a World Series, no no less. And then, um, you know, the classic long gone Yankee Stadium of the, the 70s, 80s and 90s. That's where Wells and Cone did it. So it kind of gave a, a better uh, picturesque backdrop than the Oakland Coliseum in, in this kind of weird, <laughs> Good point. weird phase here yeah. where the fans aren't showing up All and right. the team's about to move to las vegas but uh that doesn't diminish the accomplishment i don't think and um so i I think it was it was really cool to see and um it's certainly something that you never know i guess that is the what i'm trying to say is that you just never know when you go to the ballpark what that day is going to hold and i'm sure that had i been there or had i uh been among those fans who bought tickets there to to go to that game you just think you're going to see a baseball game but instead you wind up seeing a piece of history and something people are going to talk about for not just uh, the rest of this year, but years to come and decades to come. Well, that's baseball, Susan, right? So uh, well, you can't predict baseball. Susan. <laughs> the book is called 62 Aaron judge and the New York Yankees and the pursuit of happiness. The author is the very kind Brian hoax, but rhymes with Coke. Uh, you can find him at Twitter at 
Brian with a Y H O C H. Anything? The book is out next, uh, the eleventh, I think. July comes 11th. out July eleventh. The July 11th. Game. One quick thing I want to correct yes. you on. Yes. Pursuit of Happiness was a movie with Will Smith uh, that did very well. Did I say happiness? Uh, but this book I meant is the greatness. Pursuit of Greatness. So yeah. uh, hopefully it does half as good as that uh, Will Smith movie did. That's what I get for looking away and trying to uh, read your Twitter name while I was trying to read the uh, book title by uh, memory. Um, thank you for the correction, though. Uh, <laughs> uh, all right. Very, very, very last thing. What happens to the 2023 Yankees in the end, do you think? We'll see. Um, yeah. You know, obviously, uh, they, they've got an uphill battle here to climb in the American League East. And nobody, I think, saw the Rays getting off to the start that they did. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, Baltimore has come along faster than we anticipated they would, uh, certainly than I did personally. And I know that people with the Yankees have said the same. So uh, they've got their work cut out for them. I think that there's still a playoff team here. Um, it, I think it helps if they're going to get Carlos Rodon back. You can plug him at the top of the rotation because this is a guy you spent $162 million on. He hasn't thrown a single pitch for you yet, meaningful in the, in the big leagues. you got to get him back on the mound. And, um underline this in, in three lines of red ink, you got to get Aaron Judge back on this team. And if yeah. there's one thing that this uh, that this book kind of shows you, and or, or maybe that works in favor of this book, it shows how valuable and important Judge is to the Yankees because they have not been the same team since he ran through that wall at Dodger Stadium. I was there for that one. I watched it live, and I can't repeat to you what I said in the moment watching him uh, crash through the wall, but uh, because this is a... This yep. is a family podcast, but yep. this is a family podcast. Sure. I can't say that, but and then uh, when you watched him grimace, you said, "Oh no, he's hurt. He's hiding it, but he's hurt." And sure enough, uh, you know, I, I didn't think it was going to be his toe. I thought it was going to be a shoulder or his, his elbow or something, because he went through that wall hard. But that's what happens when you get a football player in a baseball uniform running yep. into a uh, yep. a metal wall. And uh, so get him back at some point, get him uh, back on the MVP track that he was in, in May hitting home runs. And um, then I like their chances, but as currently constituted, it's going to be a tough grind for them to, uh, to go and, and get that world series title. If they can get healthy and get hot at the right time, then uh, that would be the Avenue where I, I could see something happening, but uh, it's kind of hard to see the forest from the trees here. Uh, even with the team making some history with Domingo Herman, the throw in the perfect game. All right, one more time, and I'll get it right this time. 62, Aaron Judge, the New York Yankees, and the Pursuit of Greatness, available July 11th, wherever books are sold. And um, this will go up right around then. Um, so you'll be able to listen to this and then go by that. And I appreciate the family show thing because it's well known that families everywhere in this country, they, they gather around the radio like they did for like the fireside <laughs> chats. That the, the, what was that, Roosevelt? The, he would have the fireside chats. Yeah. yeah, the families would gather around the radio or for like the War of the Worlds. But I don't scare everyone like that did, you know. But people gather. It's a known fact. People do that for this show. So I appreciate that, you acknowledging that. Um, that is what I picture people listening to this uh, doing, yes. They're hanging around their, their yeah. old-timey radio and, um, you know, just reading the newspaper once in a while, too. Yeah, Dad with the smoking pipe and, you know, um, mm-hmm. mom knitting and the family, the the children are on the floor and in and, and awe. And it's great. It's great. Uh, thank you, Brian. I love the book. I appreciate you letting me be a part of promoting it. Um, and uh, hopefully we can do it another time and just talk Yankees or baseball or whatever. Sounds great. We'd love to do it.
Oh, could've used a few pounds Tight pants, points, hollering out She was a black-haired beauty with big dark eyes And points all her own, sudden way up high All right, I want to thank Brian Hoke for being on the podcast today. That was sweet. Thanks, Brian. All right, real quick, I want to do a book club update. My desk is full of books. Um, and and since we had some time off, we're going to finish two today. I'll plug them a few more times after this, but obviously the first one to mention straight off the bat is the one we just talked about, 62, Aaron Judge and the New York Yankees and the Pursuit of Greatness. Not happiness, like I said said during the interview one time. Uh, also, we're going to get to it in a second. The Tao of the Backup Catcher, playing baseball for the love of the game by Tim Brown with Eric Kratz. This is this book is awesome. Um, and the interview with Tim is awesome. I can't wait for you to hear it. Uh, but seriously, this is like, if we still did Sportscasters Book Club Book of the Year, this might win it this year or certainly be in the running. It was awesome. Tim is great. I'm so honored he's on the show. I can't believe it took this long to get him, and I hope he's on again because he was really good. So we'll get to that in a second. Uh, two more I want to mention. Uh, the first is a this, the first one's important to me, and it doesn't come out until the middle of August. But I'm gonna plug it every show till then. And this guy's gonna come on once, if not twice, to promote it. Uh, he's a really good friend and a really good man and a good father. His name's Adam Lazarus. And he's been with me for a long time. He's been guest host of this show before. Uh, he's promoted several of his books on it, including uh, an awesome one on the Redskins, another great one on the quarterbacks, 49ers uh, transition from Montana to Rice, or Montana to Young. Uh, also, um, we did a, a Super Bowl twenty-five podcast, which is another topic of one of his books, but his name is Adam Lazarus, and he's got a new one coming in August. It's called The Wingmen, The Unlikely, Unusual, Unbreakable Friendship Between John Glenn and Tim Williams. Um, And i got to be honest, when he first started telling me about this, because I know anything he's going to write, I'm going to read and promote and be enthusiastic about. And when he first told me the topic, I was like, oh, boy. How am I going to read this and pretend like I give a shit and, uh, you know, be a good friend and all that? But it's awesome. I'm about ah, a little over a third, maybe a half through it, and it's awesome. And I love reading it. And he's just such, he's so good. He's so great. And I, I, I really hope this book does well. And it seems like it's getting a lot of buzz. And I'm going to certainly do my part to promote it as best I can. But just a really good dude. Um, so the wingmen there. Another one, this is one I, Paula and I went to um, Barnes and Noble. And sometimes I like to go there because I like to just look at books and see what I missed. Not so much in, as far as sports books, but definitely in arts and entertainment because those slipped by me. And I noticed one there called Freaks, Gleeks, and Dawson's Creek How 17 Shows Transform Television. So I took a picture of it. And I looked it up, and I, I sent an email out to the publisher. And the publisher wrote back, and they're like, look, I'm going to send you a book right now. But the author, who is uh, Tia Glassman, isn't available in July. But right back in August, and I'll get her on. 
And I thought, okay, because I don't really have time to read it right now anyway. Um, so that give me time to read the book. And um, I'll talk to her in August. So, you know, we'll talk to Tia in August. And, uh, you know, a good old-fashioned book about television shows, which I love. We've been doing it for years. Brett Martin's Difficult Men, about the anti-hero. Uh, Alan Sepinwall's TV, the book. Uh, what else do we do? Andy Green, who's going to be on the next episode of the show, by the way, from Rolling Stone. His office book. So I like doing these, and I'm excited to talk about. Now, of the shows on the that they cover, I think the book is specifically about seven shows. Freaks and Geeks is by far my favorite, and a few of the others I didn't necessarily watch. But I love the idea, and I love the, um, let's see, I'll tell you the 17 shows it focuses on. I know the first one is Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, which I did watch. My So-Called Life, which I didn't. Dawson's Creek, which I saw episodes. Freaks and Geeks, which is an all-timer for me. The OC, I didn't watch. Friday Night Lights, I did. Glee, I didn't, but I did go to an arts academy, so maybe that'll help me. But that's a cool book. So basically, right now we got four books cooking. Two we're going to finish in this episode. 62 by Brian Hoke, you just heard. We'll take a break in a second for Tim Brown, the Tower of the Catcher. My buddy Adam Lazarus is back with Wingman and Tia Glassman, Freaks, Gleeks, and Dawson's Creek. Let's take a break. We'll be right back with Tim Brown. Our next guest lives in Raleigh, North Carolina, and is a graduate of USC. He has a new book called The Tao of the Backup Catcher, which we'll talk about in a minute. He's also written books about Rick Ankeel and Jim Abbott, and he's worked for places like the New York Star-Ledger and the Los Angeles Times and Yahoo, and he's making his first appearance on the Sportscaster today. A warm welcome to Tim Brown. Hey, Tim, how are you doing today? Welcome to the Sportscasters. Steve, thank you so much for having me. Happy Tuesday. Yeah, I'm really excited that, that we touch base. It's, it's launch day, and I always do feel bad taking an author's time on launch day because i got to imagine it's nuts, but I'm excited to do it. Uh, quickly, though, before we get to the book, and we're going to spend 90% of the time on the book, but I wanted to ask you real quickly because yesterday was a wild day um, for anyone who follow sports media or has been in sports media and has a career like you had two kind of wild announcements, right? The New York times is essentially out. Go to the athletic. If you want sports is what they said. And the LA times where you spent a good portion of your career has said, essentially it's totally different now, right? No more box scores. Seems like no more gamers. Um, right. You know, I was trying to get a sense for what they meant, but it seems like they mean, we're going to do more long form type reporting. I wasn't exactly sure um, exactly yeah, it what sounds they like meant. What, like yeah. more magazine style. Yeah, that's kind of the you, impression want, I got. Yeah. Like other stuff, Website. you have to go to the internet. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you know what? It's funny because I was just actually talking to my wife about this. Um, I'm, I rec- uh, well, I'm coming up on 61. And a couple of years back, I was among those laid off at Yahoo. And 
you know, you, you get a day like yesterday and, and a couple of years like we've had. And I said, gosh, you know, it sucks getting old. But on the other hand, you know, you're done with it anyway. Right. Uh, so it's so hard to watch what has happened to the industry. Um, and it does break my heart a little bit. Um, you know, those, those are good people. Uh, and you know, you know, Steve, I, I, what I think about is, is not so much guys like me. Um, but there are, you know, 34 year old men and women on the desk or covering a beat or whatever, who are having children for the first time or, uh, have their first mortgage and trying to get traction in this business and what about them? Yeah. You know, yep. what are they going to do? They've, they've they've spent who knows how many hundreds of thousands of dollars on an education and, and, and coming up in the business and being good at it and presenting something they're proud of and only to be told that the stockholders aren't getting enough return on their investment. And so you have to go. Um, and what that does to the industry and what it does to the reading public and uh, yeah, it's it's a terrible day. It's really traumatic. I've been texting with some of the folks at the New York Times, my buddies and all, and uh, they're really shook up. This is this is not, you know, I, I hope people keep in mind that there are real human beings on the other end of this thing. Um, yeah, poor now, Tyler, Tyler Kepner. He's like, got to go to the national desk or something like whatever that means. Like, yeah, you know, I, which is just yeah. a travesty. Yeah. Top five baseball writer in the country. One of the best, and, for sure. Yeah. And a top five guy in the country as well, as far as I'm concerned. With well, the top five and, book just came out last year, too. Which I love. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so talented. And, and I think, it, you know, the, 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 who suffers is the readers, right? I mean, yeah. it's guys like you and me who like to get up every morning and see what people are talking about and to get educated and to get amused and all those things. And uh, it's just, yeah, it's, it's a rough day. I, I, it makes me really sad. You know, I've been poking around with, you know, in the sports media thing for about 12 years now and 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 basically reaching out to people either, you know, who write for newspapers or magazines or websites or work on TV and asking them for a favor, which is essentially what I do every day. I'm asking people for favors. Please come and talk to me on this show that I do in my spare bedroom and put on the Internet, <laughs> you know, like, please. And, you know, I've just been amazed by I mean, I, I mean, I would never say them, but like, I have like three names of people who weren't amazing to me in 12 years. You know what I mean? Like, and that's it. It's like, yeah, it's great people. I feel like in a good business and, you know, unfortunately I talk to people all the time and they say, Hey, when you go in this business, you know, you're going to get laid off at a job someday somewhere. And that's just right. part of it. And, um, you know, I think of this, I, I was in this like creative writing class or something in college and we were reading a poem or a short story that over my head by a guy who writes fancier than I could ever understand. But he had this amazing line about how we perceive death and how it's something right over our shoulder. We're always, it's always right behind us, always creeping up on us and how that affects the way we live our lives and stuff. And that's a more dramatic, uh, I guess he was talking about something more dramatic death than losing a job. Right. But I think about that with sports media as well. It's always right there. I mean, look at the yes. names of the people who got laid off at ESPN this month. Yeah. I mean, would you have ever thought the number one, like, um, analyst on their basketball crew would be laid off or 
Susie Colbert, or, I mean, it just goes to show, I, I think they, they coined the phrase, there's no sacred cows, even though we know they have a few. But I think in general, sports media, there's no sacred cows, right? It's a rough, rough business at times. Yeah, it's, you know, it's sort of come to the point where it's not that they're not making money, it's that they're not making enough money. And I think we see it in all industries, really. You see it all the time. Right. Uh, everybody trying to make four extra dollars this week. And, uh, you know, you said something interesting about people being kind to you and, and doing you, quote unquote, a favor or whatever. But, uh, I, you know, I think that comes from is that those of us who did this job for a long time, uh, we basically stood in clubhouses or batting right, cages do, yeah. doing the same thing right. like 15, 20 times a day. Right. So uh, we we sort of get there's a karma element to like, oh, you know, you can't turn stuff down because that'll come back on you fast. Uh, so I think uh, that's probably where that's coming from. Plus, you know, your reputation now in the game and all is, has served you well. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, I just like I said, I mean, 12 years doing this and. People have been so great, and um, the list grows every day of people I've interacted with, and the list of people that I've had bad interactions with basically stays the same. It's been stuck at three for like eight years now. You know what I mean? But look at – hopefully there's better times ahead for people in the business. I just wanted to get (laughs) – I said I'm going to have Tim on. I got to get his perspective because I know he was at the Times, uh, and I thought you might have an interesting quote about it. The other thing I wanted to ask you before we get to the book – one last thing is you did spend a year in Cincinnati. I know it wasn't a necessarily like world beater year for them. I think it was thir- a third place season. Um, I know Deion Sanders was on the team. I was looking at the team that you covered a little bit last night. Yeah. Um, but they're one of the great stories in baseball here at the break. Um, they are. And I wondered if this you had fun. any thoughts about the Reds and what they're doing, given your year there and <laughs> you know how it's going for them so far. Yeah. Uh, my year there was in 97, I believe. Yeah, that's that's um, what I had. Yes, and uh, Ray Knight was the manager. He Ray was Knight. fired. They yep. brought in Jack McKeon. Marge was still around. Jim Bowden was the GM, and that's, the season imploded. But uh, you, know, you know what? Uh, what I got is I was only actually in Cincinnati for about seven months. I went from covering the Dodgers in L.A., to covering the Yankees in New York and in between stop for that one season in Cincinnati. And what I think about when the Reds are good is that town coming back to life. Uh, that's a, that's a big time baseball town, man. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, there, there was a, when I was there, they were still clinging to that big red machine thing. Uh, one of the most interesting parts of that season was late in the year September they call up Pete Rose Jr. and it was an afternoon game probably a Saturday I want to say and he comes up and grounds a ball through the infield for his first big league hit and immediately Pete and Pete Jr. became the all-time father-son leader in major league hits, <laughs> like the Gretzky's, like the Gretzky's yeah, and, goals, right? <laughs> yeah, right. And and Pete Pete Jr. said afterward, I'll never forget. He goes, "Yeah, my dad always told me get one, I'll handle the rest." That's great. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, when I see uh, you know the types of players the Reds now are putting on the field and the types of results they're getting and you know, uh, a guy stealing three bases and two pitches and, and things like that. Uh, I, I think about the people in that city who 
long for something they can rely on, something they can root for uh, beyond, you know, it's been so long now where they just pick and choose. Oh, we love Barry Larkin. I guess we'll just hang with Barry Larkin. Right, Chris Sabo we for life. Hang with, yeah. 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 <laughs> or, or, you know, they, all they've had there for so long has been Joey Votto, right? Yeah. And, and thank God between his game and his personality, it's almost enough to carry the town. He's awesome. He's one of my favorites. Um, and, so, yeah, mostly I just think about how great it is for the people in that town who are very nice and uh, very uh, engaged with that team, uh, that they have something to do all summer. Right. It's, you know, well, that they it's wait for fun. Joe Burrow to get back in town, right? They wait for Joey, Joey B. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that, that's pretty cool. I, I have a, a warm place in my soul for, for Cincinnati and, and the baseball there. Between Burrow and that kid that stole second, third, and home, uh, they might have two of the coolest young athletes in the world playing in that city too. I tell uh, you what, that kid well, he just oozes at, athlete, doesn't he? He's just different. Like you watch him run, it's like he doesn't yeah. run like a baseball player. He runs more like a NFL running back in the open field or something. Like he just has a glide to him. It's pretty pretty impressive. Um, true, true. Uh, okay, one one very 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 last thing. I promise we'll get we'll do the rest on the book. You mentioned going to New York, and I can't believe they let you leave because you did, what, two seasons, and they won the World Series in both. Um, so, <laughs> True. <laughs> so I'm surprised they let you out of there. Uh, but the Braves are 60 and 29, I believe. And they're essentially equal to the pace of the 98 Yankees. And I had, um, I believe Jack Curry was the author of that book. Jack Curry wrote a book yeah. called The 1998 Yankees. They had him here recently, and we talked about that book. And... You know, the 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 Braves' record right now is equal about to theirs, and the Mariners of that lost to the Yankees a couple of years later. Um, so we've seen a team that at this pace win it all, like the Yankees. Uh, the the Mariners kind of run out of gas, maybe not or run into the Yankees either way, I guess, and and not be able to finish it off. Uh, what have you thought about the Braves so far, and what do you think about the second half for a team that's at this point? Um, you know the Braves have a you know already like a nine game game nine game lead in the division. They're like nineteen games up on the Mets. They haven't even had Max Fried or Kyle Wright win a game yet. Um, so that's going to be like their trade deadline without losing an asset. Plus, Alex can add more if he wants, and he's the best at it. How do you how do you think you go about a second half, given your experience watching the Yankees? What what what, what do you do if you're the Braves now here the next three or four months? Is you Try not to get stale for the playoffs. Yeah, I think about when I think about that 98 Yankee team, I think about just stud veteran leadership. Mm -hmm. uh, the sorts Brocious of guys. And Tino and Jeter and yeah. Oh, and, and you know, Chili Davis. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, you go on and on. Yeah. Jeter and, and, and Girardi, guys like that who, who really, and the pitching staff was loaded with Cone and and uh, uh, Pettit and the sort of veteran back end of that bullpen that just wouldn't stop. And, and what, what happens, I think, is those veterans set this tone for what's expected every day. And, and I remember writing uh, after game four of the World Series, something along the lines of, you know, they had, they had one thing in mind all year. That it wasn't to win the world series. It was to win today. And, and for whatever reason, you know, I think teams talk about that a lot. Managers talk about it a lot, but 
it feels like the more veteran teams can cling to that sort of mantra and because yeah, the Yankees ran away with with that season as well, but they never let up, and, and it and it just yeah, went and went and went. Relentless, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it, the only scary part was that Cleveland uh, that Cleveland playoff series. Right, they lost uh, four to El, two. El Duque, right? yep. El Duque had to come back and save them, but uh, uh, that's that's what I think about in terms of you know whatever it is getting getting a little bit not, not lazy so much as um assuming something's going to happen when it hasn't come yet and that's what this Braves team is not as veteran as that Yankee team but they've been here a bunch before mm-hmm. right they're, yep. they they've won they've been good for long enough now where they get what August is going to feel like they get what September is going to feel like they know what the postseason is going to feel like I think having Acuna play at the top of his game is critical. I, I mean, Sean Murphy, yep. Sean Murphy may may be their most valuable player. Right, the, um, the, their triple A team, the A's, applied them with Matt Olson and, um, and right. Sean the last two years. Not bad. Right, I mean, yeah. you get twenty nine home runs out of that, and so uh, yeah, I think that that that's I sort of think about that is that they're clearly the the class of that of that league and it's now just going to be about showing up every day and treating that day as unique and as an opportunity for, uh, you know, to, to maintain the habits that got you here. Well, one thing the Braves do have is maybe the best backup catcher in baseball. Nice. Uh, yes. I love this. Like I love that? the segue. You like that? So, <laughs> <I love this>. <laughs> <laughs> with the nod to Travis, uh, to Travis, there, we'll we'll we'll, we'll move to the book, the the Tao of the backup catcher, playing baseball for the love of the game, and um, you know, I've been a Braves fan forever because they were the only team I could watch when I started right. loving baseball because we had TBS and they you could watch them every day. This is before yes. You know, and things like that. I could I could watch them every day, and they were really good, fun to watch. And one of my favorite guys was Greg Maddox. And I always would think about the backup catcher, even then, because of him, right? Like right. you had to have. They had Javi Lopez for a lot of those years, who was great, but yep. Greg Maddox, for whatever reason, didn't want to pitch to Javi Lopez. He needed a, yep. a specialty backup catcher, and I thought of that when I picked up the book. Um, it was the first thing I thought of, and. You you kind of go into the to the lives of these guys and and how incredibly difficult it can be, um, how important they are, and we'll get into it. But first, why the backup catcher? What made you um, want to do this? What made you want to hook up with Eric? What how what's what's the origin kind of what's the backstory here? Okay, so uh, personally speaking, well, funny because the, the, to uh, sort of elongate the segue when when I got laid off from Yahoo a couple of years ago. We were just starting this project, and Eric called me and said, "Hey, you okay?" And I said, "Well, think about how much empathy I'm going to write about your career now. Right now, now you that I've it. been DFA, yeah, now that I've been yeah. DFA, I, I, I totally understand it." Um, so, you know, Steve, all along my career, uh, my favorite guy in every clubhouse was almost always the backup catcher. Uh, for whatever reason, starting back in the late '80s, when uh, when the Angels had a guy named Ron Tingley, who was just a a friendly sort of goofball who who kept things light and worked his butt off and couldn't hit a lick, um, but 
he, you know, these guys were accessible and they were polite and they, they sort of got what you were looking for. And they had the, the heartbeat of the team. They, they just got everything because they were aware they picked their heads up. It was, everything was about, they knew the game and everything. They knew that it was about more than themselves. Uh, and you know, they, they showed up every day for the greater good. And so I, I got this sort of appreciation for these characters in the clubhouse. And as the years went on, I, I, it, it just continued that way. And as I got a little bit older and I'd written a couple books and I was starting to think about what I wanted to do next and what I was really passionate about. And that's sort of one thing you learn when you're writing a book is that you better be passionate about it or it's going to be drudgery. Uh, I, I thought about this, this area of the game that I felt was, uh, I don't know, in the shadows a little bit that I think people either didn't think much about backup catchers or uh, what, (laughs) however, wherever the backup catcher stands in your head, it's, it's probably not on the, on the front page of a 300 page book. Often you don't know who it is. Yeah. Like who is is (laughs) Right. Yeah. So, so along in 18, I think it was, uh, I was doing a podcast uh, for Yahoo and the brewers were in town and I was thinking about this sort of stuff. And I thought, Oh, I, I want to talk to Eric Kratz. That sounds like a good story. I didn't know much about him. All I knew was that he was in the transactions every day. Um, and so we sat down and had this great conversation and he was just, you know, another of the backup catchers that I had talked to in the course of decades. And, and I, we had a great conversation, enjoyed it very much, loved the way he talked about his wife, Sarah, uh, loved how he talked about his journey in the game. He wasn't bitter. He, he was just sort of happy to be there. And so we sort of formed this friendship and we stayed in touch and, and the Brewers were in the, in the NLCS against the Dodgers. So I was around there the whole time. And sometime in the offseason, he called me and said, hey, I was, people seem to like my story. You know, he's a very humble guy. He says, people seem to like my story. I don't know how much longer I'm going to play, but when I'm done, would you, would you be interested in writing a book? And I said, I said, well, tell you what, what would you think about doing a book about not one backup catcher, but all the backup catchers and using your story as sort of the spine of a book that we can weave in stories about all these other guys and he said i'm in and i said great and so that was where it sort of uh was born and i think what what became important steve is that uh i wanted to write a book that could cross over into other conversations and by that i mean the the habits of backup catchers are the sort of habits that I would like to have in my regular life as I go through, uh, you know, parenting my children and being a husband to my wife and and taking the dogs on a walk every day and and dealing with people and and so what I hoped is that I could produce something about this very specific group of men that might speak to the greater world, especially today's greater world, about, you know, uh, uh, conducting yourself 
for the greater good. Well, um, you know, I, there's a passage early in the book about how backup catchers, uh, because they don't play very often and have to provide value to their team, become father figures and big brothers and priests and therapists and drinking buddies and, and whatever they needed to do to make the guy next to them a little bit better. So maybe the backup catcher hadn't entirely achieved his goal, but he could help the guy next to him achieve his. And that was going to be good enough. A huge value in that too, yeah. Right. And so I, I didn't want to like sledgehammer it into people's heads or anything. I didn't want to preach. Who am I to tell people how to live their lives? But I did sort of hope as I was writing the book uh, that people might think to themselves, huh, maybe I should behave a little bit more like a backup catcher. You know, Eric's story is obviously the bulk of the book to some degree. There's a lot more besides Eric there as well. But I was curious kind of what your guys' rhythm was. Did you just interview him several times? Would you write something and then go to him and say, hey, what about this? You know, what, what, How did you guys kind of work and collaborate together? I'm always interested in stuff like that. Yeah, so um, it started out um, – I'm trying to think where – a lot of phone interviews. Yeah, uh, he 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 grew up in Telford, uh, Pennsylvania, which is about forty-five minutes outside of Philadelphia. And I went and spent about a week with him and his family, his mom and dad, his his high school coach, uh, people who lived in the area to get a sense of of where he was from and w- what create helped to create this person. Um, and with Sarah, of course. And we had started some work on it before he retired. So if I was in the town that he was in, whether he was in L.A. or I was out on the road and happened to bump into him, we would get dinner or lunch or something and settle back into what we were doing. And, uh, you know, in the meantime, I'm chasing down all these dozens of other guys to help create the story around Eric's story or to work the story off of Eric's story. And I think pretty much I would I would write a few chapters and send them ahead to him and say, you know, what do you think? What am I missing? Um, What what do you feel like is maybe a little too much or we could add a little more to uh, what do you like? What do you hate? Uh, Things like that. And so he was he's great. He's a great storyteller. He's a great talker. He remembers everything. He remembers. I swear to God, he remembers every pitch and every hotel room and every bus ride he ever took. That doesn't surprise so, me for whatever reason. Yeah, yeah, right. If you know Eric or yeah. seen him speak or, or anything, you know he's got his uh, podcast going now, and he's he's really good about that stuff. And he's got a great sense of humor. He's very humble uh, about like he he knows exactly who he was, and as desperately as he wanted to be more than that, he he's certainly got um, you know what he was. So uh, the 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 collaboration was great. It was easy. He was. Uh, you know, we we had a great time doing it. We laughed a lot. Um, you know, the only thing I miss is we never did get to play golf together. But no. we'll we'll work on we'll work on that uh, this summer maybe. Eric is a great name to know for if you're a Macaulay Grid fan too. You know, um, could use him often. Uh, you know, one thing I loved about the book, and I like books about this, is of course there's a flowing narrative from front page to back page, but it also lends itself to standalone chapters a little bit too. Like I think of the Mike, the Mike Sosha chapter 
which is like right. kind of the most baseball nerdy chapter in the book. Maybe almost right. like the only one too that gets as deep into the strategies of the game and sort of work, you know why are so many catchers managers and sort of that kind of a thing. Did you did you do that on purpose to kind of you have this narrative for sure that flows from beginning to end, but also within it you can kind of pick out a few chapters and say, you know, let me just read this one and focus on this area of the backup catcher, the why are they managers, the strategy, the the different things that you kind of focused on in the different chapters. <laughs> right. The shower shoes. The shower shoes. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I think how, how I thought about it was this. I, I was never, I think, you know, because I spent the formative part of my career before the age of analytics and sabermetrics, um, and then also because I was not quite bright enough to understand the <laughs> analytics or the sabermetrics, yeah, and, it was, and it was, and it wasn't my job to to create a roster. So I just never felt that drawn to the numbers. I, I was always drawn to the stories, and I wanted to write a book where, uh, again, it, it might speak to more than just a baseball fan. Uh, I didn't want to. Hand a book and say, "Hey, are you a baseball fan? You might enjoy this." Um, but the social chapter did dive into it. I couldn't ignore it completely. Uh, and you're right; it is the the nerdiest chapter in it. Um, but I, I think what I really wanted to do there was talk about the development of a backup catcher. You're sort of identifying the backup catcher and then educating him as well. And uh, how you go about that, how you become the guy who picks things up on the bench or at the rail or in the bullpen, uh, how, how you become a thinking man's catcher. And, um, you know, I was around the Angels a lot when Social was there, and he had this reputation for developing backup catchers and frontline catchers even uh, for obvious reasons. He was he was so good at it himself. Right. But I, yeah, I, I did intentionally avoid the hardcore numbery stuff. I, I really pretty much leaned on batting average, which I know will make people's heads explode. But I felt like that's a kind of a universal language for people who watch baseball still. Yep. Is that batting fair. average? Mm -hmm. Batting average. Okay, tell me what, what do he hit? You know, and and I, I do think that one of the chapters is even titled something along the lines of "Batting average doesn't matter." says anyone who doesn't make their living hitting. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I think, honestly, I, I go back to my original point was I'm just not bright enough to get the numbers, so I don't. And I really admire the guys who can write the numbers interestingly, and I read them a lot, and I still don't quite understand it, but I admire the guys who can make that interesting for sure. Yeah, and, you know, I've read a couple, probably a couple hundred sports books in the last 200 years doing this because – I realized early on, if you want to get someone to come on, if they spent two years working on a book, they're anxious to talk about it. <laughs> so it's, We appreciate the yeah, love, Steve. We do appreciate the You love. know, I would have never had the late, great Frank DeFord on, I'm sure, if he wasn't, you know, selling a book or, you know, some other names that I can think of that came on probably for that reason. But of all the books I've read, I think the ones I like the most that, sure, they're sports books, but they're really about, like, humanity, you know, or people right. or, you know, Things that you can relate to beyond. I'll never be a professional athlete. My brother was a was a, was a high end Division One hockey player, won a national championship mm -hmm. at Yale. So I, I've lived some of his experiences. But mm 
I think what I loved most about this book and what I love most about sports books that I like the most is when you feature the humanity and you get a sense of what it's like to be DFA'd again, to be, you know, back to the minors, to be looking for another job, another team, because we live those things in our own lives. You don't have to be a professional athlete, you know, to know what it's like to have to find another job or want to have a job that makes a little bit more money or to be working somewhere where the CEO is making $6 million a year and you're making 37000 or whatever. You know, there just seemed to be some humanity in this book. And I think that was my favorite part and probably the point, right? I mean, that's really what you're trying to do. Yeah, I, as you were talking, I was thinking I could have just lifted that whole passage and put it right in the book. Um, <laughs> was, you know, early on, I had uh, mentors and editors who would say to me, just tell me a story. Yeah. Um, you know, don't get bogged down in all the other stuff. Don't overthink it. Just tell me a story. And and that has, you know, it's carried me for an awfully long time. And some days I got it and some days I didn't. But uh, I, I sure liked trying. It was my passion. It was what I wanted to do. I wanted to tell a story. And I think that's oftentimes why I found myself, found myself in the corners of those clubhouses uh, talking to guys that nobody else was talking to because I felt like there, there would be a story there. Uh, sometimes it can be very hard to break through the superstars and the stars. They, they're, they've got other things to do. They've got other things on their mind. They've told their story. They, they become a little less patient um, talking through uh, revealing themselves, right? They're, they've been burned or they just whatever. And I just feel like that the stories are out on the edges of the game sometimes. Um, and so that's what got me very excited about when I was thinking about this book and what it could be. And, um, you know, just uh, everything that you were talking about. It, it was just a lot of fun. Imagine spending two years of your life talking to a bunch of backup catchers. It was it was great. I, I haven't laughed uh, that much in, in the rest of my life combined. Uh, so it was, uh, it was uh, certainly a passion project for me, and I, I think Eric and I are both really proud of it. I remember when Jeff Perlman was on with the USFL mm -hmm. book he did. Um, Great storyteller. Yeah, the USFL book was for him was, was interesting because he interviewed so many players, you know, that had played in the league, and I asked him, you know, was it was it hard? To, did they want to talk? Was it hard to get them to what was it like? And he's like, look, at this is the best thing most of these guys did in their lives. And when you think about the best thing you've done in your life, it's something you want to talk about, you know, whether it's your kid, you know, beyond, beyond family stuff. Like, obviously, they had kids and a lot of them. And then we're talking beyond that kind of that thing, you know. But I wonder, is backup catcher similar to that? I was thinking about this. Like, some of these guys probably aren't jaded major leaguers, right? They're just probably like, or in, it's incredible that they, they, they lived it. They walked it, right? Like, they were able to put the jersey on with their name on the back and be out in the stadiums like did you get that impression or is it such a uh -huh. tough business that they walk away and they say man i can't believe i had to live that that was brutal it's not what i thought when i started playing this game or whatever because I, I could see it going either way what, what was your what did you find you nailed it i think most of these guys uh a lot of them were uh coming up on retirement or had retired and i think i don't want to speak for them but my sense was they were really happy to be remembered. 
uh, and they were happy to be to. I mean, this is really an ode to the backup catcher, yeah. right? And yeah. and I think the the notion that they were going to be appreciated, even celebrated in a way, uh, was uh, felt good to them. It, so the conversations were were, you know, even even the difficult questions about like, uh, you know, wh- how did it feel to hit two oh three? Um, you know, what was that all about? Well, how did you carry it home with you and things like that? They, they were okay with that because I think a lot of them had come, uh, to terms or, or had found some kind of peace, uh, over their careers that maybe it, it didn't look exactly the way they had intended. Uh, but, uh, you know, to spin into something, I, my last question to almost all of them was, are you, are you proud of your career? And almost every time they would say, I wasn't always, but I am today. Oh, hell yeah. And, and I thought that was really meaningful. And, and I, then I would say, well, what are you mo- most proud of now? And almost to a man, they said that I was a good teammate. Um, mm-hmm. And they weren't always a good teammate, but they, they became good teammates because of what the job required. And if they were going to survive it, you know, if, if you're a GM, we talked about building a roster, right? You got 26 guys, 25 fit an analytical model, right? That the GM thinks is going to win baseball games. One guy does not fit in that analytical model beyond maybe a right left bat or a framing thing or something like that. But generally speaking, that 26 guy, the backup catcher yeah. is just a good dude. A guy you don't have to worry about. A guy who's going to show up. He's going to be prepared. He's going to be ready to play, even on the days he's not going to play, which is most of them. And so uh, Theo Epstein and I had a long conversation about this very thing and the lessons he learned from the time he was a young GM to the to became a more veteran GM about how he learned that very lesson about trying to squeeze analytically inclined guys into uh, that role and it failed and and he would lose clubhouses over it Mm, and how he had come all the way back around to the notion that um you know when david ross was all grown up and ready to go he's my guy he's not gonna hit for me um but he is going to be um the sort of guy that I need in that clubhouse who's going to do the things in the 21 hours around the game that's going to win that game. And, you know, you can tell who the guys are that the teams love because when they get a hit or they hit a home run and the just the, everyone's on the rail, everyone's jumping over the rail. It's kind of like when the 13th guy and the basketball team gets in and they hit the three and the whole bench <laughs> goes nuts. It's like, okay, that's a dude that everyone in the locker room loves, you know. Um, the the book is called the tower, the backup catcher playing baseball for the love of the game by Tim Brown with Eric Kratz. Uh, I'm running out of time here. Let me give you one more about the book and then we'll, we'll say goodbye. Oh, did you talk to Theo about being boys with Eddie Vedder at all? Uh, I did not. Oh, I don't know. No. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm like pop culture week. So, okay. uh, I'm just a big Pearl Jam guy. So I just, I don't know. I, I understand. Yeah. I understand. Uh, Fair question. <laughs> um, the the real uh, question I kind of wanted to finish up with was, so you've had two New York Times bestsellers, um, and I've actually read them both before I knew you. Um, 
uh, the, your Jim Abbott book, Imperfect, and the Phenom Anon <laughs> about Rick Ankiel. <Ankeel>. Yeah. <laughs> uh, how did this experience compare to those, and what do you hope for this book that those achieved? Um. Wow. Um. Let's see. I hope I've gotten better at this. You know. Yeah. Uh, I. You know, when I finished the the Jim Abbott book, I thought if this is the best thing I do in my career, then I'm happy with that um, because I I was I had never done a book before, and Jim was such a worthy subject um, that I felt all sorts of pressure to get it right. He had waited so long to tell his story um, that it was really important to me and. Uh, I wasn't sure I was equipped to pull it off, to be honest with you. I had I had a lot of self doubt. Oh, you pulled um, it off, and it, yeah. and it worked out okay. It did. And uh, you know the um, the Rick book was was interesting because he was um, he had for entirely different reasons. He had he he as as an amazing story as he was had never really told his story. He was so uh, balled up against the media and the world looking in on this wholly humiliating period in his life for him, uh, that that felt almost more like therapy. That Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I remember early in the process, he would say things like, yeah, my dad was kind of a dick, but whatever. And I and he would say those things a lot, and I'd say, you know what? When we get to the whatever, then we'll have a book. Um, and so it was this sort of threading out of um, of Rick's feelings uh, about his life and his his parents and and his fight and the media and all these things. Um, so it was it was a bit more arduous um, and. Also, I became very proud of that as well. This um, was because of all the different characters and, um, you know, the fact that I was trying to write something that I hoped general society could get something out of. And not that the others weren't that thing. Uh, You know, those guys were so inspirational that I hoped that people would, you know, if you reach one kid who struggled in the same way, then then it was all worth it. you know, I I hope I was I'm a little more polished and and a little more capable. I guess. Um, you know, I think that uh, uh, in a lot of ways these three books were pretty similar, right? You know, it's yeah. it's Human it's stories. people. Yeah, yeah, it's just people trying to trying to get by, man. People just trying to get get to tomorrow and get a little bit better. Well, the book is available now wherever you wherever you buy books. Uh, I think this is going to go up today, so it's launch day. Um, and I'm sure it's probably been in a bookstore for a few days. I, you know, isn't that weird? Are the books they just they start popping up? Uh, the Tower, the backup catcher, playing baseball for the love of the game. Tim Brown. You can find him on Twitter. He's at by Tim Brown there, by Tim Brown.com. And if you have the Athletic, there's an excerpt in the Athletic today, or on the Athletic. I guess it's not in it. Um, and if you want to get a piece of this before you get the whole thing, you can go there for that. Uh, do you have any questions for me, Tim? Uh, how are you going to spend the rest of your day, Steve? Well, I got to pick my daughter up. Uh, she's at like okay. a little summer program thing. So I got to nice. pick her up. And my wife made the 
horrific mistake of buying her oranges when it was supposed to be peaches. So we have to return. Oh, no. We have to return oh, a no. box of peaches. Or wait, no, oranges mistake. for peaches. Oh, she was. My daughter was furious. <laughs> I mean, these aren't peaches. You know, so <laughs> that's gonna be that's gonna be the exciting part of my day. I get a podcast up. I got so another. So you got a backup catcher two. day, man. You got I do. I'm grinding today. Yeah, I'm grinding. Everybody happy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, even if you're not, your name's not going to be in the box score, Steve. But yeah. you had yourself a day. Just try to be a team guy, you know. And I then, feel you. And then let's see when the day ends. You know, maybe team guys sometimes are rewarded. You know what I mean? Just see. You, you, you never just, know. Yeah, you just, you never you just know. try you to know be. What they make room. They make room for you on the float at the end if you know if you win it. Yeah, you just, just so. try to be a team guy. You know, get a ring. Um, appreciate that. Thank you so much. I, I appreciate this. Hope I didn't keep you too long. Congratulations on launch day, and uh, hopefully we do it again soon. Looking forward to it. Thank you, Steve. Have a great day. Brian Hoke and Tim Brown for being on the podcast today. Don't forget you can find this episode and every episode of the Sportscasters podcast on our SoundCloud page at soundcloud.com slash sports-casters. You can also find me on Twitter. I'm at sports-casters. You can also find me on threads at sportscasters, although I refuse to do anything on threads. I'm just excited because my name there is actually at sportscasters, uh, but I'm not. I don't have any. I mean, I have six followers there. I'm not building that up. Brutal. It's not even chronological. The sportscasters at gmail.com. And of course, rate, like, review. Don't forget the 24 inch podcast right on this feed as well. We'll have a new episode soon. Uh, but really, I'd also like to promote for the first time, I think, on this show, 3x5 with Steve Bennett on the North South Connection page and YouTube. If you just search North South Connection, on YouTube or 3x5 with Steve Bennett. You will find it. Uh, and if you can like the episodes uh, and if you can comment on them and all those things to help me get in the algorithm, maybe we can get one of these episodes to pop off a little bit. That'd be great. So uh, that's my new show. All right, one last thing. Oh, on the podcast, the next podcast, which will be here before you know it because uh, I'm not going to hold it back much longer. Andy Green from Rolling Stone joined me to talk about the Motley Crue controversy, the spear that's opening in Vegas, and all other music topics um, as we do a little summer music interview. I'm also trying to get Matt Pinfield on the show. We'll see if that works out. Um, I got a bunch of interviews that are like kind of booked. Uh, we'll see which ones actually get booked, but uh, Matt Pinfield is one I'm working on. Uh, we'll talk some 90s rock with him as he was always great on 120 Minutes back in the day on MTV. Uh, also on the next show, um, a debut, Dan Robson, or Robson, Ra. Dan Robson uh, will be on. He's a senior enterprise writer for The Athletic. He did a really uh, long piece on Connor, not Connor McDavid, but Connor Bedard. And uh, we'll talk about Bedard with him. We'll talk about generational hockey players, talk a little hockey post-draft. And also we have a, him and I do a Canada draft. We do four rounds, snake draft format. You can pick any Canadian, and uh, I won. But uh, you'll hear that on the next episode as well. All right, one last thing real quick. 
So July 11th just passed, and it was the two-year anniversary of Italy winning the Euro. The 2020 Euro, they won it in 2021. So it was delayed a year for the pandemic, which means the next Euro is, you know, one year away. I have a countdown on my phone. I think it's like 337 days away, something like that. Be here before we know it. And the 2020 Euro will always hold a place in my heart because it really did change the course of my life. I think I've said before, but coming out of the pandemic, I was really struggling as a sports fan. I watched the Saints, and that's about it. I didn't watch much football that wasn't the Saints. I didn't really watch much hockey. I certainly didn't watch basketball. I missed events that I always watch, like the NCAA tournament or I don't know. All I just didn't. The pandemic came. The sports went away. They came back hyper-political. And the things I had found to do instead were filling my time. And I couldn't find a reason to stop those things and get back to sports until the Euro. Until I interviewed John Champion on this show from ESPN. And he said, Italy could win this. And I said, okay, I'll be watching. Now, I probably would have watched anyway, whether he said that or not, because, you know, I've always loved Italy, the Italy national team. They've been the soccer team I cheer for, and I watched every World Cup and every Euro since 1986. And them winning the World Cup in 2006, which was the 17-year anniversary a few days ago as well, one of the best days of my life. Being able to go to my grandma's grave and put a peach rose on its side and say, Grandma, Italy's happy again. We're champions of the world. I mean, it's one of the best moments of my life. You know, my grandparents, they got on a boat in Italy, fled the Nazis, crossed the Atlantic Ocean so that I could have a better life. And... Being Italian is one of the most important things to me in the world. I'm not not 100% Italian. And I know some people online, they have different definitions of what it means to be Italian. You know, my dad's dad was not Italian. So my last name is not Italian. But if you know what I look like, I'm Italian. I think 70%, something like that. And... It's always been, to me, what makes you Italian. It's sort of how you're raised. And I was raised Italian. My closest grandparents were Italian. My mother was Italian. You know, the food I ate was Italian. Everyone was always saying, you look Italian, you're Italian, you're Italian. You know, I went to the Sunday dinners. I was at the parties. You know, I seen my Italian family start out as this huge family when I was a kid and shrink down as people moved away, as older people died, as younger people failed to live up to the expectations of the older people and keep the big family together. They just went on and did their own things. But I was exposed to the best of Italian culture. Family is everything. All that matters is family. And Scopa, and the food, and the language, and the passion. 
all the things I love about being Italian. I was exposed to it. And I lived it in a way that my brothers who are six and 11 years younger than me didn't, didn't, didn't do. They didn't live it that way. And they're both just as Italian as I am, but you never, they, they don't, they don't, they're not as Italian because they weren't raised because of their ages. They didn't experience the Italian life that I did. They didn't go to Aunt Valia's for the Feast of the Seven Fishes. You know, they didn't have to go with Grandma Zinia to her sister's house and sit there and wait for four hours while they talked nonstop in Italian with no cable TV and no kids around and nothing to play with and not being old enough to fit in with the older guys playing playing Scopa and, you know, but too young to, not too old to be with the babies. I don't know. I lived it. You know, I eat a pound and a half of Capicola every week. You know, I named my daughter after my grandmother who came over on the boat at 12 years old with her sister who was nine by themselves. My great-grandmother was already here. She got the sponsors to bring them over. They had to come by themselves. They had to get on that boat in Italy by themselves Get out of there before World War II started. Come to America just so I could exist. My great-grandmother sacrificed so my grandmother could have a better life. And my grandmother sacrificed so my mother could have a better life. And my mother sacrificed so I could have a better life. Three generations of Italian women sacrificing so that I could be who I am today. So you know what? It better come out of my mouth that I'm proud to be Italian. You know, I went to Staten Island in 1998 just after my grandmother died and and seen her face in her sister, Elsia, and learned from her and talked to her. And my grandmother, Paula, her number one cousin, Linda, who I still text to this day. I learned about my grandmother and her first date with my grandfather and all these things. And I spent a week with them in 2003. Just bumming around with them. While I was waiting in between some baseball games and some Pearl Jam concerts. Just living life as a Staten Island Italian kid. Messing around with the daughter of the um, cone shop or the lemon ice stand. <laughs> Hanging out with old Italian ladies. Eating sp- sauce every night. Homemade sauce. But look, it, at some point, I let some of that pride fade a little. You know, I didn't, it wasn't part of my everyday life. It was part of me, but it, nece- it wasn't necessarily part of, my, part of my life. And then the Euros came and Italy won the first game and they won their second game. And they won their third game. And they won in the round of 16. And they won in the quarters. And they won in the semis and penalties. And they won in the finals and penalties. And me and Paula and my Uncle Paul, we jumped up and down and said a prayer for Paula and Grammazinia in heaven. And said, Italy are champions again. And it was a cultural awakening for me. It awoke something inside of me about my desire to be Italian, to tell people I'm Italian, to live my life as an Italian-American. 
it lit a fire in me to make sure my daughter knows that her great great grandmother came from it came to America from Italy even though she was born in the United States and her mother took her back to Italy and she never spoke a word of English clearly. She was somehow a U.S. citizen. So she was able to come here before her kids and then call for her kids who came here. And then it's just, she needs to know, you know, that she's the fourth generation, the third generation Italian-American. She's the, the, the fourth in line of those women I talked about. My great-grandmother, my grandmother, my mother, strong Italian women who love being parents, who wanted nothing more than to love their children and to make their children's lives better for them. I was the one who held my great-grandmother by her arm and walked her to my grandmother's casket while she wept and said, my poor Paula, my poor Paula, over and over, because she loved her kids so much. And when I asked my Aunt Angela, what is it about my grandmother you can tell me? She said, oh, she just loved to be a mother. She wanted to be a parent more than she wanted anything, to have money or a career. She wanted to be a parent. And she raised two great ones, including my mother, who worked two jobs. And even though I think we were poor, I guess, I never knew because I had everything I wanted my entire childhood because she bust her ass. Italian women, three of them, sacrificing so I could have a better life, so I could be who I am today. And I better not be failing them, especially as an Italian-American, especially as an Italian. My daughter better know who she is. You know, the, uh, she had her birthday party recently. I know this is getting long. I'm going to wrap up. My daughter had her seventh birthday party, and she got not one but two Italy jerseys as gifts. And when she opened the first one, I swear it was the biggest reaction of every gift she got. Her face lit up. And we're going to go, you know, like I always said, like, I'll never leave the country. I'm a domestic traveler. Now, nah, fuck that. I'm getting a passport. Me and Paula are going to Italy. We're going at some point. No doubt. No doubt. But I'll never forget the 2020 Euros played in 2021 because it changed my life. It set me on a path I'm never getting off of. I talk about being Italian-American every single day. And you might think that's stupid. You might like be Polish and German or whatever and not give a shit like my wife really. Well, she cares about being Polish like one day a year on Dingus Day. Fair enough. But being Italian-American is important to me. And I always knew it was important to me. Uh, but I slipped. Somewhere between that 2006 World Cup and the 2020 Euros played in 2021. I wasn't the same Italian-American that I was, but I woke up. I woke up, and now I shop at the Italian meat market in my neighborhood, and I watch videos from Italian creators, and I, I try to learn the language as best I can, and I try to understand traditions from the old country that maybe didn't make it over here or maybe that I knew about as a kid when, I, like I said, my family was more Italian-American because more of the relatives were alive and together and keeping the idea of family strong 
And that's the number one thing. When you've been through the hell that I have, you know that nothing is more important than family. And I don't mean fake people who pretend to be your family. I mean your family. Nothing is more important to me than my daughter and my wife and my brothers and my mother and my father and my one grandmother that's left because family is everything. And my uncle and my aunts and my cousins, except for one. Look at family is all you have at the end. And I, I like I cringe when I hear that like that's somehow now like a conservative value. That's just not a value in general. But every day I wake up in this house and I think I need to be a good husband today, to be a good father today, and I need to be a good Italian American today. Because don't get me wrong, as much as I love being Italian, uh, I still think I live in the greatest country in the world. And I wouldn't trade being American for anything. I wouldn't give this passport up for anything. I am an American through and through. Don't get me wrong. But I'm not just an American. I'm an Italian American. I'm just like those dudes in the Bronx or the north, the north end of Boston or Brooklyn or Rhode Island, which has the most Italian Americans per capita of any state. I'm right there. I'm with them dudes. I'm a proud Italian American who loves his mother, who loves his family, who's scared of the maloca, who calls it sauce and capicola and mozzarella and bruschetta. Italian American through and through. That's me. And it's thanks to the 2020 Euro. Euros played in 2021 that I understand again how important that is. Ciao.